Welcome to Step Into Magic, your weekly online radio show on how to develop your psychic ability, deepen your spirituality, and find your own true purpose. Presented by acclaimed medical intuitive, Josephine Lang. This broadcast is a part of the Wisdom and Intuition Network. This is Anthony Taylor, your host, and on behalf of Josephine, I'll be taking your calls and questions. This week's topic is Life in a Reincarnational Reality. Death is not the end. For anyone new to our show, Josephine has been a clairvoyant healer for more than 25 years. During that time, she's helped thousands of people from around the world to heal from hard-to-diagnose and chronic health issues. She's also been a teacher and spiritual mentor for hundreds of people who treasure her insights, courage, and love. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much, Tony. We've had listeners in 24 different countries around the world this last month. Isn't that great? So I'd like to extend a big welcome to all of you, and we're so very happy that you've joined us. Tonight we're going to be talking about reincarnation, and I'd like to start with a beautiful quote by Gandhi. And, Tony, perhaps you can show that slide for us. Certainly. It goes like this. Each night when I go to sleep, I dream, and the next morning when I wake up, I am reborn. And our times between lifetimes are really like that. It's just like a refreshing sleep. We go through these different levels that help to purify our consciousness and help us to sort of review our lives. And it really brings us a great refreshment and it makes us eager and ready to come back again. There have been, you know, some really amazing researches that have happened here in the West on the topic of reincarnation. There was one man in particular, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia. He did most of his work in the late 1960s, and he interviewed something like 2,500 cases of children who exhibited uh, memories, who had recall of past lives. And, you know, it's really wonderful that his research was introducing this topic to us here in the West, because we don't have that uh, history of really having a belief system in reincarnation. But all of these case studies came forward and showed that there was really something significant there for us to pay attention to. And what happens with these is usually the children, sometime at around age two or three, which is typical, very quite young, will talk about a previous family and, and often the way that they died in that previous lifetime. And there's a lot of really interesting, accurate statements that can take place. For instance, one that I heard of was of this little boy who his previous lifetime had been on an island. And then in his current lifetime, they took him to the, him and his parents to that island. And uh, he had told the researcher about significant places in his family, about significant places from that past lifetime. He described them first to them. And then when he got to the island, he just went straight to them. And it was such a great little story because, you know, it really shows how we can really recognize uh, things from a former time. And I'm sure many of you have had that feeling where you've gone someplace new or exotic or someplace that you've been attracted to, and you suddenly get there and you think, wow, this feels pretty familiar. I know I have, and it's really a, a, a wonderful feeling in a way, I think, and we sometimes feel that way about people, too, where we'll get together with somebody and we'll think, oh, gosh, this is a nice, familiar energy. This feels really comfortable. And sometimes with these reincarnation stories, there will be a birthmark or a little defect on the body that uh, matches a wound that the deceased former owner has experienced in their, in their former lifetime. Uh, you know, I think it's just so wonderful because I think there's something like nearly 3 billion people now who are connected via the Internet. And so we have a lot of access to this information that was formerly very, relatively unavailable to us, like Stevenson's research, the, uh, Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia. And there's other newer researchers, and a lot of them. I personally really enjoy the research into the near-death experiences, like what we covered on the radio show a couple of weeks ago. They just really show us that consciousness continues after we die. And that really helps us to change our understanding about life and death and, and our whole way of viewing the world, really. Uh, 
And when we do that, it, I believe, frees us to really realize our spiritual growth, to see that it is a process and that we blessedly don't have to accomplish everything in one go because it would be such a big, heavy task to try to to make all that growth in one lifetime. So it's nice to realize we've got many lifetimes. And reincarnation gives us an opportunity to experience all the facets of life. As we're reborn together again and again, we progressively embrace our interconnectedness and move closer to love, which is our whole reason and purpose for being here. And I personally feel that this is how God experiences God, or how, you know, if we think of God as an ocean, how every drop of water creates that ocean. And every one of us gets an opportunity to experience the many facets of that divine nature. And so as we come again and again in our lifetimes, we get a chance to do that. So tonight we're going to dive right into the deep end uh, in this, you know, ongoing nature of life idea. But before we go any further into this topic, I always like to begin our show with a spiritual agreement. And this was a gift for me from and for all of us who studied with our dear friend Jana Massey. And so I'll share it with you now. And I ask that you all please make this agreement with me, if you will. It goes like this. Together we acknowledge that everything that we think, that we say, and that we do at this time will be of the highest good. And together we ask for truth, the understanding of that truth, and the wisdom to use it in our lives. Can you all agree? I do. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Josephine. I'm so pleased we're doing this topic tonight because as you were you know, saying earlier, when I grew up, um, there were people either believed in heaven or hell or nothing, you know, which was yeah. becoming more prevalent. You know, it's just the end. Yeah. And then I got, when I got a bit older and I learned a little bit about Hinduism and Buddhism, I realized that on the other half of the world, uh, people believed um, in reincarnation. But then uh, I guess as I did a little bit of research, I discovered that in the ancient Gnostic Christian texts, the idea of reincarnation is essential. And again, in the, the ancient Jewish Kabbalistic texts as well, uh, where they have the idea of um, reincarnation. So we do have a little bit in the West. Yes, we do, thank goodness. And, of course, the First Nations people of this country, here long before the Europeans came here to North America, they, of course, naturally believed in the cycles of life and death and, and death and rebirth, and they saw the whole world as a living organism and they really saw the coming again and again, just like how winter comes and then spring comes and summer follows and back into fall and winter again. And I think that many of the nature religions of the world have really believed in those cycles of life and death and rebirth. Mm. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, to hearing you talk about that. <laughs> but perhaps for first I could um, read out a couple of messages. Oh, please do. I would love that. Uh, we received a fantastic message from a listener um, from South Carolina, and she writes as follows. Thank you for spreading the word, Josephine. When people embrace the truth of life after death, it really helps to set them free. It really is time for folks to wake up, in my humble opinion. In fact, that has been my fervent prayer for about 45 years. <laughs> the beloved ones in my life who have gone on ahead continue to be in touch and I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. It assures me that they are quite all right, that they love me, and that they still have their sense of humor. Last week, Bill showed up pretending to be an angel. The pose was a trifle overdone as he floated in the air, wearing what appeared to be a large gunny sack. <laughs> the facial expression just a bit smug, and he'd forgotten his halo. <laughs> this fish made me laugh out loud, which was just what I needed at that moment. Hmm. Ralphie also lets me know that he is checking in from time to time. To me, it is utterly awesome that there is so much true love in this world and in spirit. Yeah. I have learned that the more love one feels and gives, the more that love multiplies and returns to us. It seems that the main thing one takes with uh, when leaving the body behind, beside their experiences, is the love that has been expanded by giving and accepting it. Mm. Warm love to you, Alita from South Carolina. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, Alita. <laughs> and very fun and funny, too. Yeah, wasn't that an amazing <laughs> angel? Great senses of humor. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, we also received a, uh, another wonderful message from Rosemary in Santa Cruz, and she writes, The story of the mustard seed from last week's show was such an excellent story to hear about. Oh, yeah. The story separates us in our grief, and then the seed brings us back into the community of understanding. Great little story. Good job. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I love that story. Thank you so much, Rosemary. <laughs> Thank you, Alita. So nice of you to write in. Yay! <laughs> So my father was one of those reincarnation children, and he actually exhibited the the uh, trait of xenoglossy, which is knowing the words of a language that you've had no exposure to. And he spoke a little bit of Hindi as a little three-year-old boy, and he remember he named actually he named his cat the Hindu name for cat. And my grandmother, being British, she had had a little bit of exposure to the language, and so she was able to recognize what he was saying. And he described to her a scene where he and his family were killed in a big earthquake. Apparently, they lived in India, and an earthquake came, and the timbers of their home came crashing down, and all the family members died in that event. And she figured that, oh, this is probably a reincarnational story. He probably had this past life. And he apparently was around the age of 11 when that occurred in that lifetime. And then there he was, you know, born to my grandmother and grandfather and lived a life of relative solitude in the Arizona desert. And so he had no exposure to knowing about these things, but yet he described it in full detail to my grandmother and to my grandfather when he was just a little boy. And there are a number of researchers who do wonderful work on this topic. One that I've come across is Michael Newton, Ph.D., who wrote a book called Journey of Souls, New Case Studies of Lives Between Lives. And then another one is Dr. Jim Tucker, who wrote Life Before Life, was one of his books, and he also wrote Return to Life, which is a a wonderful uh, little book with a lot of different uh, childhood, children experiences, the experiences of children who have had memories of their past lives. And we discussed a little bit about that, what happens between lifetimes a couple of weeks ago on the show. We had a show titled, What Happens When We Die? Welcome to the Mystery. And uh, if you haven't heard it yet, you might enjoy listening to that as well. And then Dr. Jim Tucker, in his research, he kind of continued on in the vein of uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson, he was also at the University of Virginia, an associate professor of psychiatry. And what he did was he went out and met with the families, mostly Americans, but he did also travel around the world a little bit to hear what some of these children had to say about their past lives. And then he verified whatever he could, which was quite a lot. And as I said, typically the kids are usually around two or three years old, but some of them will have memories as old as six. Uh, at that point, often the memories will begin to fade when the child reaches the age of individuation, somewhere around seven. And usually the children who have these memories, their deaths in the former lifetime were usually quite violent or sudden or some sort of an unnatural death. And my feeling is that the reason for why they are able to remember is because we can often remember things from our past lives that have a kind of a high volume, they're sort of a loud event, and so that makes it just a little easier to remember them. And so I think these children are able to remember because sometimes these experiences were quite profound for their deaths, and then that will trigger memories of the rest of the life as well. And so one of the children that he studied, which I thought was a really interesting case event, uh, was different from that. This was Uh, the golfer, Bobby Jones, who was a very famous golfer. And usually the deaths will happen when the person in their past life was sometime like around 28 or 30. And for Bobby Jones, he lived an older life. He lived to about 69 or something, I think. And um, the child who came in with the memory of Bobby Jones' life, was his parents requested that he remain anonymous just so that he could go ahead with his life without being interrupted by this. Um, former lifetime and so we'll just call him Hunter and he was a three-year-old golfing prodigy usually they don't let these children even take golf lessons until they're five but they went ahead and made an exception in his case because he was given a little set of plastic golf clubs at the age of two 
And he had this amazing swing that, you know, older folks who saw it said, God, that kid looks a lot like Bobby Jones, you know. (laughs) It was just so remarkable because he really had a characteristic style. And uh, at one point, they grew up, this little boy, Hunter, grew up in California. And at one point, his father was playing a little, uh, on on the Golf Channel, a film clip was played of Bobby Jones who was, you know, like I said, kind of a dominant force in the sport sometime in the 1930s. And the child, Hunter, told his parents, he said, I, you know, that's who I was when I was big. And from that moment on, he demanded to be called, a, to be known as Bobby. And Bobby Jones was this, you know, I think he was like a 13-time major winner of the Masters, and, and he helped to establish, I guess, this very famous golf course, pardon my lack of knowledge on golf, but I think it's called the Augusta National Course. And then later, this little boy, Hunter, you know, uh, he would create golf courses with sheets and pillows, and you know, in the house in his family home, and he would state that Augusta was his favorite course, which I thought was pretty great. And then he also, at one point, his dad showed him numerous photographs, black and white photographs of homes, and then he included in that, just to kind of test the child to see, he included Bobby Jones' childhood home. And the little boy pointed to it and said, yeah, that's my home right there. So, you know, these things are, there's no way that you can actually concretely prove them, but the anecdotal evidence is pretty strong. And um, now this young little child is at age seven, and he's won 41 out of 50 major junior tournaments, which is pretty surprising, pretty great. So perhaps, Tony, you can show that slide then. This next And this is a quote by Voltaire. And it says, It's not more surprising to be born twice than once. (laughs) Which I think is such a great quote. (laughs) That's very nice. Yeah. But, I mean, the story of the the young hunter is quite amazing. And, I mean, I'm not sure as you'll go on, you know, to tell us more. Yeah. The similarities between the the children and and why that, that particularly young age when they have the memories. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious to find out more. Yeah. Well, um, you know, so one of the things is is that typically, though it's not always the case in these studies, women tend to come back as women and men tend to come back as men. And that was the case with another one named, uh, in his past life. He was Marty Martin. And he, Marty Martin was one of those super agents in Hollywood. He was during the golden era of the 1930s. And I think uh, one of his, uh, clients was Glenn Ford, and then he was pals with Rita Hayworth. And then here comes this little boy, Ryan, who, you know, is the son of a Baptist minister. And, you know, <laughs> such a surprising thing, I'm sure, for the whole family because, you know, when he would speak of his past life, he would change from being this fun loving little five year old into this really serious matter of fact delivery. He was being, he was having a Marty moment, you know. <laughs> and, um, at one point, his mom brought home a picture book from the library of early Hollywood stars because they were really interested in him and what he was doing, and he was so so enamored with Hollywood. And they were flipping through it, and he said, Hey, Mama, that's George, the man pointing to one of the man, men in the photograph. And he said, We did a picture together. And Mama, that guy's me. I found me. And they, he pointed at this other sort of obscure actor who wasn't listed in the photo credit, in the credit for the um, who was there in the photograph. And so they went ahead and pursued it a little bit, and they got a documentary crew who used, you know, archival footage to act as consultants, and they actually identified the man in the photo as the agent Marty Martin, and that's, and he was in like this, you know, uncredited cameo role in the picture. And then, uh, as well, whenever little Ryan would see photographs of the Hollywood Hills, he would say, oh, there's my home. You know, he's, Mommy, I can't wait till I get big again and I can go on those big boats and wear fancy clothes and dance with all the pretty ladies. And you know, that's how you see the world, Mommy, from a big boat. <laughs> <laughs> and he also talked about this somewhat mysterious, you know, Senator Five. And then later they actually, you know, pursued this pretty far and they met with Marty Martin's still living daughter who was you know now much older at the time that they met with him and she confirmed something like over 50 of the claims that ryan had for the accuracy that he was her father 
and uh, you know that he lived in this huge Hollywood mansion with a swimming pool and was well known for his love of socializing with the rich and powerful and and one of those people was Senator Ives, which you know Senator Five probably just got a little wrong in his young Ryan mind, but I thought that was pretty great. That's another really beautiful story. And we've got another slide, if you could show it, Tony. Certainly. This one's by James Hillman. And this is so great. It says, we forget that the soul has its own ancestors. <laughs> and it's true. We do go back in time. We have a lot of little stuff back there. Yes, we certainly do. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the older I get, the more I, I, I think I sense it and feel it. You know, the presence, the weight of all the people that have come before. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? And the weight of not only our own ancestors, but the weight of our own, of all of our times, different incarnations mm -hmm. that we've been here with, all of the different experiences that we've had. So, Josephine, did you say before that the average age at which these people died was um, 28, did you say? Yeah. So that's like, so they're, they're dying quite young then? Yeah, and usually it was, like I said, you know, something that was a sudden or unexpected death. <laughs> something that kind of carried a higher volume, a little louder mm -hmm. um, energetic imprint. And then many of these children who remember their past lives, you know, they, they've died, like I said, of kind of a violent or sudden death. And that was certainly the case with Sidney Cole Howard, who was a playwright. And he died in middle age when he was crushed by his tractor in his garage. Kind of a tough way to go. Mm -hmm. And then here comes this little three-year-old Lee, who was born and raised in a small Midwestern town of only like a couple thousand people or something. And Lee would speak about his home in Hollywood. He was another one of these Hollywood kids, you know, <laughs> former Hollywood star, you know, big wig, and now a reincarnational kid. And they asked him, you know, did you did you work on the movies and did you act in the movies? He said, No, no, I didn't. I didn't act in them. I wrote them. And then so his parents thought, God, what's this about? So they started saying these famous film titles. And after the fifth or sixth one, of course, they thought of Gone with the Wind. And Lee said, yes, that was my movie. I wrote that movie. And so, you know, Sidney Cole Howard, who was the playwright, he won an Oscar uh, for his screenwriting. And, um, you know, that was probably Hollywood's biggest blockbuster, Gone with the Wind, you know. And he also got a Pulitzer Prize for Drama, I think, in 1925, and a Posthumous Academy Award in 1950, 1940. And little Lee insisted that his birthday was June 26th, when he was really born on June 21st. And then his parents discovered that Sidney Coe Howard's birthday was June 26th. <laughs> so he was, Lee was holding on to that old, you know, former lifetime birth date. And then little Lee also had a real fascination, but also was terribly afraid of tractors. And, um, you know, he would have these vivid nightmares where he'd, you know, cry out that his arms were broken and that a car had managed to pin, him, pin his arms down. And just before the film Gone with the Wind was released in 1939, Sidney Cole Howard was, as I mentioned at the start, was pinned against the foundation wall of his garage by his tractor and crushed to death. The poor guy. So, again, that's one of those kind of difficult lifetimes, but um, or difficult deaths, but uh, one that was able, you know, left a deep, strong enough impression that when Lee came in, uh, that same soul making a journey forward in time, he was able to recall a little bit of that. He was able, you know, we we pass through what is known as the veil of forgetfulness when we enter into these lifetimes of ours. But sometimes some of these impressions are strong enough that they're pretty easy to pick up. So now we have another slide that perhaps you could put on. Certainly. This one is a quote by Carl Jung. And he says, I could well imagine that I might have lived in former centuries and there encountered questions I was not yet able to answer, that I had to be born again because I had not fulfilled the task that was given to me. Mm, that's excellent, one, huh? an excellent quote. I mean, on that subject, I've mentioned before, I think, that my friend Sonu edited um, Carl Jung's The Red Book. Yes. And uh, recently he published a book, and it's a, it's a dialogue, it's a transcript of three conversations he had with James Hillman, who was a famous Jungian uh, psychologist. And it's, it's about The Red Book, and it's called uh, The Lament of the Dead. 
And uh, they explore Jung's idea, which emerges really strongly in the Red Book, that we are here to serve the dead in the sense of learning the lessons that they missed and having the experiences that they failed to have. It's it's truly a remarkable read. Yeah, isn't that a fascinating idea? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we're coming back to, you know, complete the lessons that we didn't complete when we were living Mm -hmm. and come back again, or if we're also coming back to complete the, the lessons that other people have not completed. Yeah, well, it makes sense to me that it would both be our own, and why not other people's as well? I mean, if we're all in this together, why not yeah. be able to, and we're learning collectively. Well, we're both learning individually and as a collective. Yeah. So we're part of that collective learning as well. Fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. So I've got one more for you, and... Uh... All four of these examples that I'm sharing this evening are of men. And a lot of these childhood reincarnational memories are more common in boy children than they are in girls because, like I said, the deaths that they were able to recall were of a higher vibrational volume, meaning that they were typically were violent, sudden or unexpected, like my dad's in the earthquake. And it's just in the population we tend to have more of those types of deaths for men than we do for women. You know, there's things like war or dangerous jobs and things that can, you know, uh, injure, fatally wound a man. So that's, I think, part of why these reincarnational stories in children are maybe perhaps more frequently among little boys. And certainly all four of these tonight are of little boys. And the researchers have found that typically it takes about six months between lifetimes before reincarnating again. But sometimes there's a really large gap of, uh, like, for instance, in this one case of James Leininger, he, I think, it was a, there was a 50-year gap between his incarnations. He was born in 1998, James Leininger. And his past life that he could remember was of a, being a World War II fighter pilot. And this one has become quite famous now, which I'm so glad about because it's so uh, well-documented and the various scenarios are things that he described were so able to be accurately recorded and, and noted. And so his is a particularly wonderful case. And he even got to be reunited with his former lifetime's family, which is really something. Mm. And all of this, so in his uh, past life he was James Houston, and in his current life he's James Leininger. And little James Leininger was really enamored with jet fighters, jet fighter planes. And this began when he was at the age of two when his father took him on a little father and son trip to the Kavanaugh Flight Museum in Dallas. And he saw all these fighter jet planes and he was like, wow, he just loved them. And then soon afterwards, he'd take his little toy airplanes and he'd smash their noses like onto the edge of the coffee table and screaming that the aircraft was on fire and 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 then he started having these really profound nightmares and he would wake up shouting things like airplane crash on on you know airplane crash and airplane on fire and little man can't get out and while he was still sleeping he would kick upwards on his bed up above his you know up above in the air above his bed to as if he was trying to kick open the canopy of an aircraft from the inside and um this was then you know followed by really lucid details and conversations with his parents And he said to his mother, Mama, before I was born, I was a pilot, and my airplane got shot in the engine, and it crashed in the water, and that's how I died. And he said, he told his parents that he took off from this carrier called the USS Natanamo Bay. Uh, I'm sorry, Natanamo Bay, Natanamo Bay. And his name was James, and that he died during a plane crash. And he began to draw these pictures of fiery plane crashes, And this is what they say is how children commonly will deal with post-traumatic stress syndrome disorder. Um, And same with the reincarnational children. They'll draw these drawings of how they passed. And then he and his father, they went and attended a reunion for the USS Natamape veterans. And they discovered that the only pilot that was killed during the two GEMA operations, which was the one that he was on, was this 21-year-old from Pennsylvania named James Houston. And so they tracked down that young World War II pilot's sister, Anne, who was now in her 80s, and she verified a number of these personal family details about James Houston 
that was given by young James Leininger. Like, for instance, I think at one point they had to hospitalize James Houston's father for alcoholism when he was about 11 or 12, and different things like that that had happened that James Leininger knew about that former family. And as their investigations continued, he uh, even was able to identify a former company member from his company in World War II uh, by his voice. At the, and that happened, I guess, at the hallway at that reunion, and where he just said, "Yeah, I know who you are," and said the guy's name. And and then he also knew lots of details about the particular type of plane that he had flown. You know, he knew that uh, that one particular type, of, I think, it was a Corsair, was notorious for getting flat tires when they landed. And um, when he was handed a model of the plane, he commented that the small antenna was missing. And then his you know, his dad looked it up and said, yeah, indeed, there was an antenna there on the plane. You know, it's all kinds of really cool things. And then the one that I really loved that I'll just finish with with this was that when at one point he was out working on the yard with his little son James and then the dad Bruce, the current dad, you know, bent down to hug his son and tell him that he loved him. And James, little James replied that when he saw his parents eating dinner in Hawaii on Waikiki Beach, he knew that they were the right parents for him. And Bruce, his dad, said that he had no idea how his son knew about that, you know, romantic trip that he and his wife went on to start their family. It's really great, isn't it? Yeah, that's really, really nice. <laughs> yeah. So, so I get the idea then, Josephine, that you know certain children have very strong memories and then they disappear, and then mm-hmm. some adults start having memories of of past lives. Would would you say it's like its value is is simply uh, that it helps us to believe in a reincarnational reality, or would you say that we actually can learn you know great things from the recollections? Well, I think there's both. I think, for one, it helps us to understand that our consciousness does live on. And then I do think that we also do glean the wisdoms from our past lives. We can really pull forward what we learned. You know, our our soul growth is a progression, and we learn certain things in one life and certain things in another life. And we don't need to repeat the lessons that we've learned before if we don't want to. And I think it explains how we come in with certain talents or skills as well. So, Josephine, we have actually uh, received a message from uh, New York, a listener in New York. Wonderful. And she writes, Dear Josephine, I just found your show on podcast and have been listening nonstop on my way to work on the subway. I just listened to a show from back in August about a woman who manifested pastoral energy on her ceiling. And I know the most recent series is about the afterlife. This brings me to one of my own experiences. The last time I visited my mother before she succumbed to cancer in 2007, on the night before I was flying to Florida to spend Christmas with her, I awoke to a dark figure at the foot of my bed. He said nothing, he never moved, he just looked at me. At first, I wasn't afraid because I knew him. She had told me about her guardian, that he had actually saved her many times, and I thought, oh, this must be him. And then... I became afraid. I thought, why is he here in my room? Am I hallucinating? I wasn't. Am I dreaming? I was very awake. I knew it was a warning, and I was right. I could feel deep inside a knowledge that this was the last time I would be with her. My question about this is, is it common to come across the guardians, spiritual guides, etc. of others? Have you ever come across dark figures like this? How should I deal with them? Best wishes, Mackenzie in New York City. Wow, Mackenzie, thank you so much. That's a really great experience, and thank you for sharing it. And these are really great questions also. So is it common to come across the guardians and spiritual guides, et cetera, of others? Well, it's not that common, but it does happen. Um, one of my favorite, favorite books is written by a dear friend of mine, Lee Lawson. It's called Visitations from the Afterlife, True Stories of Love and Healing. And, in fact, I met Lee because of this book. I got a, heard a, bought a copy of it and got it and read it, and I just thought, oh, my God, this is just fabulous. I'm going to have to call this person. I found out she lived in our area, and we've been fast friends ever since. And she collected uh, about 80 different stories that were really profound of... Um, 
encountering people who had moved into spirit. And one of the sections that she has in the book, because she's divided into sections, things like, you know, visions of the afterlife or saying goodbye for now. And one of them is of guardians, protection, guidance, and warning. And, you know, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to just read this one short little story um, because it is one about a guardian in partial answer to your question, Mackenzie. This one's called Watching Over Her Beloved School, Miss Hadley's Children. It's by Charlotte R. Turner. And she said, My first teaching job was at Hadley Elementary School in a tiny three-room rural schoolhouse. The students were divided into two groups, my group of first, second, and third graders, and Lydia's fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. The schoolhouse was originally an old church building converted into classrooms by the town's first official teacher in 1926, over 30 years earlier, to serve the small village and surrounding farming community. We were feeling the chill of mid-October poised on the brink of winter. Only the week before, a new modern gas furnace had been installed at the schoolhouse, finally replacing the decrepit one, which had needed replacing for at least 10 years. That ancient boiler furnace hadn't been dependable for heat for a while, and it made terrible noises that frightened the children and teachers alike. After endless pestering by worried parents, the district council finally had a new modern gas furnace installed. Tuesday, after lunch, when we were having our weekly art session, a woman burst into the classroom and, addressing the children directly, said, Now, children, go as quickly and quietly as you can. Take your coats and go outside to the benches on the far side of the field and stay there until I tell you to come back. Now go, quickly, right now. The children stood up immediately and started for their coats. The woman was calm, but the urgency in her voice was clear. She spoke with absolute authority, so much so that I found myself saying, Now hurry up, children, let's go outside quickly, as I started herding the class out the door. I didn't stop to wonder who she was. As we got the last child through the door and into the field, the woman turned to me. Make sure that all your children are there with you. Stay there. I'm going for Lydia's group. Now hurry. I marched my baffled children across the field in the cold, crisp, chill air. As we went, I could hear Lydia and the woman talking excitedly, and then sounds of the older children leaving the classroom to follow us. Her voice, more more urgent now, the woman hurried the older children through the door, ordering them to go quickly to the benches. Now take Flora's hand and run over to the bench, she called out to one child as she grabbed as she herself grabbed the hand of one of the other smaller girls. Lydia was half running, half walking alongside the children, saying, You don't understand. Impossible. It's less than a week old. In less than a minute, we were all gathered at the benches about 50 yards from the schoolhouse. Lydia and the woman were speaking, both animated and insistent. But you don't understand, Augusta. The furnace was replaced. There's a new one now. It's perfectly safe. It's brand new. Lydia, you aren't listening to me. The furnace is going to explode. Do not take those children back into that school. Oh, now I understand. I remembered thinking she must be one of the grandparents who was worried about the furnace and doesn't know that they put in a new one last week. With a look of exasperation on her face, Lydia was trying to convince the woman that the old dangerous furnace was gone. Trying to stay calm, Lydia went on. I know that your concern is for the children, Augusta, but there is nothing to worry about. It's cold out here, and I need to get these children back inside. Some of them are out here without their coats. This school is my response. Listen to me. I will not have any of my children hurt. Don't you understand me? I will not. At that very instant, the schoolhouse exploded and burst into flames. Thirty-four gaping students and two astonished teachers were riveted to the spot, watching in horror as the school burned before our eyes. Lydia sent two of the older boys to get help. We were counting the students when help came, and along with it, most of the people from the town and surrounding area. It didn't take long for them to discover that the furnace had been installed improperly and had a faulty gas valve on the pipe that led from the tank. The new furnace blew up the school. The irony was not was lost on no one. After a confusing, exhausting day, I finally got home in the early evening, ready to sleep for a week. At only 7 o'clock, I was already in bed with a cup of tea when the doorbell rang. My husband answered it, brought Lydia back into the bedroom, and pulled up the rocking chair next to the bed so she could sit down beside me. When Tom left the room, Lydia and I just looked at each other and started to cry. Our tears were a mixture of exhaustion and relief. What if? Thank God. Thank God for that grandmother were my first words. She saved our lives. 
That's why I'm here, Charlotte. Lydia was choked up, and it was difficult for her to speak. That wasn't one of the grandparents. That was Augusta Hadley. She was the teacher who started this school back in the 20s. But I thought Miss Hadley was dead, I interrupted. Looking down for a minute, Lydia started to cry again. She is. When she was calmer, Lydia told me that the night before she dreamed of Augusta Hadley, warning her that the school was in danger, that the furnace was going to blow up. Lydia woke up thinking that the dream came from all the years of worry about the safety of the old furnace, so she just dismissed the warning. As it turned out, no one ever asked Lydia or me how we happened to have all the children out on the field when the explosion took place. Everyone was just so grateful that we were all safe that I guess that it never occurred to anyone to wonder. It was a real miracle that no one was in the building when the furnace blew up, they all said, for many years to come. Isn't that an incredible story? No, that's really amazing, really beautiful. Oh, that one is just one of my very, very favorites. And, you know, Mackenzie, it's just a, a great um, description of how guardians of others do come to be with us, to warn us or to let us know things. And, um, you know, you also asked, have you ever come across dark figures like this? And no, I personally haven't, but I've known others who have. I have a friend who, years and years ago, her mother was a real estate agent, and she was going to a remote piece of property in a rural area, and it was uh, um, getting very close to dark. It was dusk, and as they pulled onto the dirt road to go to this old, dilapidated, broken-down, worn-down house that had long been abandoned, she just got this really kind of creepy feeling, and um, but yet she had the client in the car, so she was putting on, you know, kind of a stiff upper lip, and we all, had, yeah, yeah, this is good, where we're going. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, came this uh, kind of dark, shadowy figure who came right before them and swung the gate closed in front of their car as they were approaching, and latched the latch, put the, the little hook over the gate to kind of hold it in place. And he sort of peeked up from underneath his hat and he gave him a look like, you know, don't come, shook his head, waved them away, and walked away out of the area. And she thought, oh, okay. <laughs> and she said, I guess we're not going in there today. And so then she did. She backed out of the road and they left. And um, so, you know, how do we deal with them? Well, I think that the thing to do is to send them love. And how really wonderful, you know, that this, guardian of your mother's came to you to give you this warning to let you know that your this might be the very last time that you saw your mom because what a gift that is to know if death is coming so that we can go ahead and address it properly we can make whatever communications we need to make and say them if we need to and then whenever we're around some somebody like that who we think might be or who is a a vision from another uh, dimension of reality love is we know the strongest energy of all and if we can just if we are beaming out love nothing else can come in and so you know like my friend's mom did you know she acknowledged this man at the gate and was like okay i'll back up you know so let them know that you've received the communication like you probably did with your mom's guardian telepathically you know when you knew that this would be the last time you, that you might see her and then you know center yourself in love and let that love project out from you. And like I said, that's the most powerful protective energy of all. So thank you so much, Mackenzie, for your very thoughtful questions, and I'm really delighted that you've been enjoying the show. And thanks for telling your friends, and because the more of us, the merrier. And I'm so glad you gave I've got this book, Visitations from the Afterlife. I always keep it handy because it's one of my very favorites, and that's, I think, my favorite story of all of them in there, although they're all gems. They're just beautiful, beautiful stories in there. So um, thanks so much for writing in and for bringing forth your, your beautiful questions. And you know, I think that it's a really good idea for us to come out of the closet and share these types of experiences and know that, you know, we're not weird, we're not crazy. It's actually a natural part of our human experience. And so I really thank you for taking the time to, to write in. It's wonderful. So we've got another little slide for you. This is a quote from Ram Dass. It's one of my favorite quotes. And it says, I don't know about you, but I live in a reincarnational reality. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very, very good. Uh, Josephine, on that subject of uh, coming out of the closet and sharing our experiences, we've had another uh, message from a listener. 
Oh, good. And this is from Marie, and, uh, and she shares one of her experiences. Oh, lovely. And she writes as follows. Hi, Josephine. I have two children that have reincarnated many, many times together. Oh. I didn't bring up our children in a specific religion, but my son waited to tell me of him being with his older sister many times when we walked through the convent doors in Chicago. He was seven, and we couldn't find any place for the children to take piano lessons, and that was the only reason why we were in a religious setting. But as soon as Sister T, in her whole habit, her long garments, answered the door, he smiled and walked in. Up until that time, he was not excited to be in a university setting. Then he said, Mom, I want you to know, Sissy and I have been together many times. I was speechless, but he was completely comfortable walking down the hallway. It wasn't until my daughter was having cranial sacral work uh, with Dr. Wells did my daughter experience past lives with her brother. She couldn't wait to tell me. And that was the first time that I recounted her brother's information when he was seven. She asked me why I didn't tell her. My answer was, you were ten. And I was having my own experience trying to handle this. Both my children know exactly what the, know exactly when the other is in any trouble or the other experiences tremendous pain. Mm. This has happened a few times. It's pretty remarkable. Marie. Wow, thank you, Marie. That's wonderful. Great, great story to share. And I love that uh, the little your little daughter's past life recall with her brother came forward when she was having her cranial sacral sessions. I think that sometimes we do enter into slightly altered states, you know, when we're in our meditation or receiving body work and and the stimulation of the of the body with the hands-on healing. Yeah, like that, that deep relaxation. Really bring it about. You've experienced that, I'm sure, with your Alexander mm-hmm. sessions, Tony. You know, memories can come up. and Definitely, yes. Yeah, isn't that something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, like I said, that you know, sometimes the duration of time between lifetimes can vary, and um, one of the things that I love about our past lives and studying past lives is that they are actually easier to remember than our dreams. And I think that if we go ahead and approach our past life recall and our past life memories, if we make the decision to go ahead and remember them, they're actually pretty. That's actually a pretty easy thing to do. And if we direct our intention to the task and we don't block our perceptions with disbelief, then um, they can come quite easily to us. Myself, I don't see death as the end. I think that um, that what happens when we move between our lifetimes is that, and when we understand what has come before in our former lifetimes, that it really expands our awareness. It, helps us to really know more about our own true nature, and our beliefs can confine us in a way. So why not free ourselves and let ourselves open up to this idea and really move into it and really embrace it? So I'm glad that so many of us have, and um, thank you so much, Marie, for calling in and sharing about your experiences with your children. It's really wonderful. One of my creeds that I like to live my life by is an ancient creed that served humanity for, you know, probably, I would guess, hundreds of thousands of years, but at least several thousand that we know of, and that's the creed of know thyself. And when we know what's in our past life, we can more appropriately embrace the present and guide our future. And sometimes our past lives can explain to us our fears, like young Lee did with the tractor experience that he had after, uh, you know, in his former life as Howard, uh, Sydney Howard, Sydney Cole Howard, and um, you know I think that we don't want to have these fears be excuses. Like for instance, if we maybe had drowned in a past life, we don't want to be always afraid of water necessarily. We can go ahead and free ourselves from the confines of the past. Um, but it does sort of explain sometimes I think our anxieties and sometimes our attitudes that hold us back from having our true human potential. I'm sure that many of you have come across that book that was uh, written and published in 1988 by Brian Weiss, Many Many Lives, Many Masters, where he talks about a young patient, a hypnotherapy patient, who was just crippled with anxiety. And she would come in and have her hypnotherapy sessions, and as she was there during her time, 
under hypnosis, she would describe these past lives that she'd had one lifetime at a time per session. And each time she would go into it and really share a life, she wouldn't necessarily remember what, what she had talked about when she came out of hypnosis, but her anxiety began to lighten each time because sometimes all we need to do to help lessen our fears is just to talk about them, to share with with others about our fears, and then that does lessen them. And so even though she was doing that under a hypnotic trance, it still lightened the load. And by the time she'd gone through 18 or more different past lives, she was completely free of all of her anxiety. And he was so impressed by this as a young doctor that he you know, had chronicled it, and he wrote the book about it, and just mm-hmm. was like, this is this extraordinary experience that happened. And so when we know who we are, and in this case, either consciously or unconsciously, in the case of Dr. Brian Weiss's patient there. But when we know who we are, we can engage more fully and honestly in life, and we can bring our unique gifts forward and, and make the world a better place for all of us. And, you know, I think that it's wonderful to kind of take a look into our past lives. We can kind of explain our personality tendencies or our natural talents. And and the other thing that it really does for me that I just love is, you know, it's like, what's the rush, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a long life, and there are many of them. <laughs> you know, So if we don't get it all done in this lifetime, it's okay, you know, this or another lifetime. And it gives us a little bit of leeway to relax and take time for joy and to love more fully and to find our peace and our purpose in our lifetime. Do you know, Josephine, it's always struck me that there are some things which I just seem to come in knowing and other things that I'm clearly here to learn or try and learn this time around. I mean, do do you have that experience? Like some things, they're already part of you as if you've experienced it and learned it a long, long, long time ago. Yeah, and I think that our astrology ties in with this as well because in the person's natal chart, you can see things that they've come in with, different talents and skills that they've come in with, which is probably a past life marker, and then different lessons that they're here to learn, different things that we're supposed to accomplish. And I think that that's very much the case where, you know, like for instance with myself, I came in a natural organizer, and (laughs) it's okay. I don't need to learn that one. I've already got that one down. (laughs) Well, on that subject, we've had a message from Ina. Uh, It seems like he came in with an inquisitive mind because he writes, Hello, Josephine and Tony. My inquisitive mind wonders if there was some kind of confirmation that it would have been a bad idea to enter that old house with the gate. Yes, I think so. I think it would have been a very bad idea to enter that old house with the gate. (laughs) And I think that's why that warning guardian came, you know, to warn her off. And I think she, you know, had that gut feeling as she drove up in the first place and, you know, was sort of putting on the happy face. And then when you combine the gut feeling with the guardian who was slightly dark in nature, it's like, yeah, let's get out of there. (laughs) But but nothing, you know, then happened to, to, to... Confirm that no, bad. no. But isn't it nice that they didn't have to go through that? That was very nice because I'm, I'm thinking now of your New Zealand stories where, you know, the the evidence came later in the day. Uh-huh, I'm really glad I avoided that. Yes, yes. Wasn't that something? Yeah, because in those cases, you know, it was like on the news. Oh, a hurricane! That's yeah. so. Now I understand why I got the queasies and didn't want to drive down that road. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I think you know, it can, it can be better not to get the confirmation, just to yeah, just to have that feeling and to trust it, and then yeah. to go away and, yeah. and leave it behind. Yeah. So now I'd like to go ahead and jump into a little exercise, if I may. So why don't we all just relax and breathe and get in a comfortable position. And, of course, if you're driving a car, save this for later or operating machinery. And just think of a place that has attracted your attention. You can close your eyes if you like and just let yourself just imagine any place in the world. It's probably a place that you might have thought of more than once. Let yourself remember it and make a mental note. And now think of a style of clothing from any place in the world or any time in history that you've admired or found captivating in some way or another. And let yourself remember that. Now see if you can remember a time when you've met someone new 
who you just felt so comfortable with, sort of like old friends. Make a mental note of who that is. And then come on back to your normal waking consciousness and let yourself remember these little things. You can journal them later and catch them in your journal tonight before you go to bed. And take a couple of relaxed and easy breaths and stretch and move your body a little bit and open your eyes when you're ready. And these are probably past life connections. We do come and go, you know, with different groups of people and we visit different places around the world. And Plotinus, that, uh, the philosopher who inspired the Gnostics and the Christian mystics, I've got a lovely quote on the slide there, Tony. Perhaps you can put it up, and this is by James Hillman. And he said that, as Plotinus tells us, we elected the body, the parents, the place, and the circumstances that suited our soul. Isn't that nice? Yes, that's very, very nice. And I would love to find out more about Plotinus. But I do have some slightly worrying news, Josephine. Oh, dear. And that's about the time. Oh, no, not again. (laughs) We're running dangerously close to running out of time. Oh, gosh. And I know you've got so much more you want to say. (laughs) Well, we'll just have to save it for another time. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, let me say that the link to next week's show can be found on Josephine's website at stepintomagic.com. Simply click on the top menu for radio. And if you have a question for us or would like to be included in our weekly newsletter, simply go to the contact page of Josephine's website. Again, that's Step Into Magic and send us your message. So, Josephine, are there any parting words that you'd like to say? Yes, there are. And, you know, there was a beautiful poem by um, Rabindranath Tagore that I was planning on reading for you guys tonight at the close of the show, and somehow I've misplaced it, so we'll just have to save that for another day, too. Oh, that's a shame. It is a shame, but it's uh, it's lovely. It talks about how... When we are moving between lifetimes, it's rather like um, he says that he doesn't know how he came to be in this mystery, like a bud in the forest at midnight, but that when we move from one lifetime to another lifetime, he likens it to being taken from the mother's breast as we are moved from the left breast to, you know, that discomfort of being taken from that breast to find in in the right breast our own consolation. And I think that's just such a beautiful idea to think of how we can move from from one lifetime to the in-between times to another lifetime just as graciously and as lovingly as we are when we are a child at the breast. It's a lovely thought, isn't it? That was a very lovely thought. <laughs> I think you conveyed it to me <clears throat> as well as the poem, so thank you very oh, much for that, for that, Josephine. <laughs> as always, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I trust that everyone listening has learned lots about life in a reincarnational reality and that death is not the end. This has been show number ATA-3.14, and if you've enjoyed the show, we really hope that you will tell your friends. And in closing, I'd like to thank all of you so very much for giving me the gift of your time. And I'd like to finish with this little blessing, which is that as our gifts are given in love, they are received in love. And we honor their wise use and their increase for all concerned. I wish you all insight, wisdom, and magic as you pursue the journey of inner knowing. And I hold you all in light and in love. Thank you so very much for listening. This is Josephine Lang. Until next week, good night.
Thank you.